Kia ora and welcome to the Maxim Institute Book Club. Uh, my name is Jeremy, I'll be your host today, and today I have with me Danielle Van Dallen, who's a researcher at Maxim Institute, and Joanne Abernethy, who is our interim CEO. So welcome to both of you. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> they, they've both been corralled into reading along The Road to Character by David Brooks, a 2015 book that dives deep into questions that ultimately shape the development of who we are as people. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about ideas of suffering, character, humility, love, vocation, morality, formation, and wisdom. And hopefully we will be as deep as those words suggest. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling a bit of pressure to be so, I don't know, inspiring. <laughs> That's right. I mean, Danielle, you were the first of us to read this book. You actually read this book not for work, but for uh, in your own time. Um, can you sort of just describe like what led you to read the book and kind of how you how you came to it and what your first reactions were? So I actually read this book over the summer while I was cycling the Otago Rail Trail with a friend and talked about it quite a lot as we were cycling the many kilometres. I had heard about the book quite a few times uh, around work and the community that we work in. It had been recommended to me a number of times, I think. It was just always on my list of books to read, people I admire in my day-to-day -day life had read it and enjoyed it. That's generally how I build up my book list or reading list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before coming to read the book again, but what were the sort of main takeaway points that you had that maybe you were talking to your friend about uh, that you sort of, that you mainly took away of like, this is, this is great, I really enjoyed this? I enjoy learning from people's experiences. So a lot of the book appealed to me because it is made up of the stories of really interesting people, a lot of whom I hadn't thought much about or engaged with very much. They, or their stories really challenged me and encouraged me in different ways. The thing that stuck out to me, I think, was this idea of character as humility. And it's hard to disengage having just read the book, thinking about it in a work context from having read it over the summer while cycling um, through the beautiful Otago rail trail. But I think that the importance of humility really stood out to me. In developing character, it's something that I, I think had thought about but hadn't articulated or put into words. And this book helped me to do that. I want to dig into humility. It's quite a large section and sort of part of what David Brooks is talking about. Yes. Joanne, just uh, I thought I'd do the, do the same uh, courtesy to you. For you, having read this book and, and just coming off a weekend of I was hurriedly trying to finish it before we get the podcast done, what, what for you stands out as some of the major themes or points that the author is trying to get across? Like well, We can dig into kind of uh, how successful we think he is at doing that, but w what to you are the sort of his main theses of what he thinks are important for the reader to get, get from this? I think he was trying to get across that no matter what you do in life, you have to apply yourself to good character to be able to achieve your goals. So each of the people that he examined, he, was, he obviously chose them because they achieved great things in uh, their lifetime. They applied themselves to uh, a goal. And I guess he's trying to say that to be able for all, any of us to achieve these great things in life, then we need to apply ourselves to not just the goal, but to this inwardness, a way of applying ourselves to the inward person. And that's just as important as the higher goal that we're trying to achieve. I really resonated with that. I, I think that for me, it was quite stunning hearing him 
talk so openly about the concept of sin and weakness in the human person. For me, the biggest thing I take away from this book is almost a plea from him to take seriously the weakness uh, in ourselves. And and I think that it's, uh, you know, he starts out by talking about resume virtues and eulogy virtues, but I think that partly that we use the resume virtues and we can get into the Adam 1, Adam 2 discussion, but we use the resume virtues of the things that we've accomplished to almost distract ourselves from the things that we're dissatisfied with in ourselves. And the I mean, if you asked anyone and they were willing to be vulnerable with you, I think every person would be able to answer almost immediately, you know, what about yourself are you insecure about? Not, you know, your 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 physicality, but what are the things in your heart? What are the things that you want to do, but you do not do? What are the things that you want to control, but you seem to not be able to control? Um, and I think for most of us, there are immediate answers to that. And uh, yet we hardly ever talk about those things unless it's in the context of um, a church service or some other kind of religious faith, which still manages to maintain a sort of a, a vision of the improvable self and yet we we think about ourselves as improvable in the public setting as oh, i want to learn a language i want to you know get a degree or i'd love to go back and study this or i'd love to you know do yoga every day or improve my physicality or my mental health in some way but actually improving my moral fiber making myself a a morally better person a more virtuous person it's kind of got this reputation of being a nerdy kind of like oh man you must hate yourself but there's something really releasing in actually someone naming on a page look we're all horrendously broken in in some way we've actually all got these weaknesses that are moral failings and we ignore them at our peril it's something that i'm keen to dig into so do either of you have any thoughts on kind of how he sort of outlines that and 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 whether or not he does so in a way that makes sense outside of his own personal or anyone's personal faith yeah it was something that really stood out to me and when i talk about things or areas of the book that both challenged and encouraged me this was a major area it's it's really encouraging right at the end of the book, spoiler alert, to to hear him talking about stumblers and the idea that actually all of us all of us stumble all of the time and that's okay. We don't get it right, we make mistakes, we screw up in really big ways sometimes. There's this going forward or seeking something better that he works toward or I think he's really looking for that himself. I mean, in writing this book, he calls it the road to character because he is searching for character in his own life. And he talks about how in his life he has, I, I can't remember the quote, oh, he's lived this life of vague moral aspiration that he wants vaguely to do good things, but hasn't really sought after what that means or how he might do that. All of these people that he's investigating, his thinking is that they they really have sought after something. They have worked on their character. They have tried to develop good character. Yeah, I think it was interesting for me, the one quote that sort of stood out, and I think it's the sort of almost the premise for his thinking. He was talking about a 1950 Gallup poll, which asked in 1950 whether they thought they were a very important person. And at that time, 12% said yes, yet uh, they jumped up to 2005 and 80% thought that they were a very important person. 
And I think that's one of the premises for the um, book is this sense that we've lost the, the application to self and the, the desire to pursue character or even to look inward in a way of acknowledging weakness, which is what you're referring to, Jeremy, that sort of let's pull it out there. We all know that we're, we've got weaknesses or these moral failures as he frames it. Have we applied ourselves to fixing it? And I think his a desire through going through these different characters is for us to examine the fact that all of them are very weak and they have these moral failures. But what are we doing in this age to address our own weaknesses? We, we almost are trying to focus on the big, I'm great at this, and I guess the social media sort of aspect is we, we focus on the good rather than focusing on the weakness. And he's trying to say, let's stop and think about what our character, what are the weaknesses that we need to improve on and to apply ourselves to, to develop something other than um, highlighting just the good all the time. And I, th- I think that's a really interesting observation because this is a necessarily personal book and a personal journey that one person has written and we get his collection of people whose lives he's either impressed or fascinated by and I think one of the things I found most dissatisfying in the book is that many of these people I'm like I don't want to be friends with these people I don't like you know we're sort of exploring them as these examples of people who and I, I think maybe it's that I was thinking he was holding them up as sort of examples of great character. And, and in some cases, I think he genuinely is. But I think also he's he's mainly picking weaknesses that he sees and picking frailties or people who have figured out a unique way of, of attacking that frailty. And I think he's selecting his own frailties. Now, I'd be really interested to see if the same book was written by someone else what the balance would be because there were some of them that I could relate to some of them that I couldn't and I I found myself getting a bit annoyed at some of the examples he was picking because I was like why this person but actually the more I think about it and then this conversation I'm going well actually you know it's probably because these are the these are the limitations and these are the weaknesses that he sees in himself and he is heartened by the fact that someone with this frailty or with this weakness was still able to achieve something great. I'd be curious about what people, different people would choose to highlight different weaknesses. If somebody else was writing the book, well, what examples would they include? But I completely agree, Jeremy. I'm reading through this book thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to spend time with any of these people. They're, they're really difficult characters, fascinating to hear about or learn from, but I don't know if they would be on my dinner list of, you know, fantasy people I would want to have dinner with. I think that's what I struggled with the book initially is because it talks about it as the road to character. So you sort of feel like, as Jeremy said, that he, they were ho- he was holding these people up. I had a level of confusion about where are you going with this character? And I kept waiting for some revelation of the fact that they had a self-revelation of their own character. But it's almost like he chose these people um, because he could see their failings. But I'm not sure that some of the people that he explained, I'm not sure that they actually had the same self-revelation that he is now, in hindsight, trying to apply to their lives. And that's one of the weaknesses in the book, I think, that these people have these character flaws. I'm not sure that they applied themselves to their own character in the way that he's suggesting that we do. I think sometimes these circumstances meant that they, for for whatever reason, they struggled and went through things. A lot of the time I just suggest that um, at the beginning the character is young and by the end of the uh, chapter the person is, uh, you know, mid-40s or towards the end of their life. And I think there's a natural ageing process of maturity that um, develops character just through living life that I think he has not acknowledged at any place in the book. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I that was a similar reflection that I had as well. And one of the things that I have noticed about myself now that I'm much older and wiser than I was uh, the, in my mid-30s. So wise, so wise. But, you know, having having had some fairly big disappointments in my in my sort of early earlier years in my 20s um, and, and also having to confront some of my biggest failings and flaws and having to basically become very small again and kind of almost start from the beginning in, in my own life, I found myself when I meet people, I can almost detect when someone has had a great disappointment or a similar moment where they've had to face themselves and face the, you know, and, and, and not saying that... I I'm, you know, the the final evolved Pokemon of myself. But it's it's really interesting to me when I can almost sense about someone that they have a sort of an underlying, and it's weird because I, I characterize it as an underlying sadness, but I think it's probably more fair to say an underlying understanding of sadness or grief and suffering. But that their hope is some it's kind of more meaningful because when you've experienced deep grief and suffering and you can still after that overcome that and see that life does go on and that is character building in and of itself and it's maturity building and I think it builds a, an understanding of the way that the world will continue to work uh, even you know we look at even now in, in the midst of you know sort of this great unknown of COVID and, and the economic um, carnage that's going to come there is a sense that if you have gone, people who've gone through major life upsets before, they've been extremely poor or they've they've had to face losing a house or losing a family member or, or anything like that, that going through something like that and living to tell the tale means that when the next things come along, you've got a sense of proportion and you've got a sense of, well, you know, in the end, how I face this is going to say something about who I am. And that, to me, is part of what he's digging around with, with character and facing, he calls it, you know, going through the valley of humility. Like, I can't control this. I can't maintain the sense of an impressive self to everyone else in the world. Um, I'm going to be exposed for who I feared people would see me as all along. Um, and yet, going through that valley and coming up the other side and going, no, it's okay. Like, I, you know, people, I've found people who love me. I've found a safe place to sort of build back from. I think that's what's the most important thing about the reason he went and talked about different people's stories and not just his own is that telling stories is important. And I think for us to have that shared human experience, the fact that how do you get past grief or how do you get past sorrow is you need to know how other people have done that and applied themselves to that. And it's not just for the sake of a character exercise. It's like, how do we live this life in a way that builds us as, as people and therefore connects us in a community of people? I think if we, the, one of the challenges with society now is we do, as he addresses in the book, is we do think about things in an individualistic way. And so it's all about my life and how I'm traveling through and what I'm going to achieve. But I think the most important thing about life is that we are shaped by people. Um, we live for people. And if we can't really do this on our own. And if we live in isolation or we think about ourselves as being formed in isolation, then I think we've lost something really essential about what it is to be a human being. And he, he's trying to address that, but he doesn't. I don't think he quite gets there, but each of these people are formed by the people they're in relationship with. That's what actually helps form their character, and that's what we look to as we look for examples of other people. It was like, well, how did they survive? How how have they travelled through life? How do then I can apply that to myself? Or who are the people that are speaking into my life to help me develop? 
I think it's more than just the people as well. It's the institutions he talks about a bit that are around us that shape and form us and help us develop character. So George Marshall, for example, he talks about the US Army and that, the role that that played for him. Institutions is something that we don't really talk about today. We're, we're more likely to talk about the impact other people have on us in developing character than we are to talk about the impact of, of the institutions, of the schools and the government and the communities around us, the churches, whatever communities you're a part of, the impact that they will have. That's something that I was reflecting on quite a lot in the Big Me chapter, talking about the idea of the fact that we've kind of reduced our search for meaning and truth down to the big self, the sort of one true self that he talks about. And I, I mean, I thought that was a really incredible articulation of something that is so true i mean i just i talk a lot with friends about messaging and disney movies because i just love disney movies but you know you you get into the 90s you know 1989 the little mermaid you know um whereas in the early years of disney you know you have uh characters that are the traditional character going on an adventure and they are helped along the way by other people and usually you have a sort of mystical or magical force that comes in like the fairy godmother in Cinderella or whatever who helps that character along the journey of where they should be going and then you've got um, in the 90s you've got uh, basically all the movies that were feeding into my generation Uh, Little Mermaid you know I've got this inner desire that's completely isolated from anyone else who's underwater I want to be you know with this prince above the water I'm 15 years old by the way you know (laughs) Um, and all through you've got these characters Characters who are discovering their true authentic selves and the, the struggle is against people who do not want them to be there who want to hold them back from being their true authentic selves as I was reading that I was like I was wondering what role of a disillusionment with institutions and with the institutional power to describe the norm or what is good in society so the failings in the church failings in even you know the massive sexual abuse scandals both in the church and also in government care government schools these large institutions that were norm making that helped to sort of fashion hey this is how life should go this is what life looks like and not just sexual abuse but also the you know this disempowerment and horrendous treatment of of different ethnicities uh, Uh, colonizing forces and also the war Um, you know all these are reasons why institutions got a bad rap because of the massive power of an institution because an institution has power over so many people's lives and authority vested in people if the if people who are broken are are top institutions they can do massive damage to people's lives but the reverse of that which i think we've almost forgotten is that because of that power if institutions are good and they are run well then they actually can do incredible good in many people's lives. And I think that the sort of reduction because of our lack of trust in that institutional authority, the fact that it can be wielded wrongly, has meant that we've sort of reduced everything to, well, I can only trust myself and maybe the people that I choose to trust as well. And the problem with that is, of course, that we lose the good that can be done for each of us. And we're also not acknowledging the deep brokenness and the deep distrust we should actually have in ourselves. Yes, exactly. It's this really difficult balance or tension that we have to manage. And that's that's not an easy thing. And I think just because institutions have done terrible things, just because people have done terrible things and failed so greatly, doesn't mean we get rid of them altogether. We have to continue to to work and try and seek after how we how we develop good character recognizing that there is good within the the chaos and that we can or that we need one another to to do this well 
I think trust is a really interesting point because it's one of the th- reflections I had is that this moral ecology is, that he talks about, it, it seemed that the, the generation he was trying to refer to, they had a natural distrust of self. And I think the generation that we're in now is that we, we trust ourselves possibly more than we should, which is why I think he um, thinks that humility is the most essential ingredient. I'm not sure I agree with him. Like I, I was reflecting about humility quite a lot through reading this because he does have the code of humility at the end. I'm like, is it a code of humility that's the most important? I'm not quite sure. But I think what he's addressing is the fact that in the past, people had this um, framework of even understanding that they in and of themselves were not enough or there was something that they needed from other people or, as you say, institutions. But I think we've lost that in the generation that we're in. We think that we can do it all. And actually, if we stripped it all back and there was just a lot fewer of us, then I could probably still achieve everything I need to achieve. We've lost that interdependence, which I think is a real key ingredient to life. A few years ago, I was at a conference and there was a guy at the front and he was sort of talking about great leadership. And he was saying, you know, he had, I think, seven characteristics or six or seven characteristics up on a big board and he was saying, you know, which out of these characteristics, you know, do you, is the most essential thing for a great leader. And I remember some of them, you know, they're, they're like intelligence, um, charisma, uh, authenticity and all that sort of stuff. And he was, and he said, you know, ha- have a talk amongst yourselves. And, and then he was like, authenticity, authenticity as a leader is the most important thing we can ask from our leaders. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I, I actually wanted to, I almost just wanted to step up and, and, and stand up and go, no, someone can be authentically wrong. You know, someone yeah, actually, yeah. There have been plenty of examples just in the 20th century of people who very firmly believed in the rightness of their cause and in the rightness of what they were doing and did horrendous evil. So authenticity is actually nothing without a mediating influence of, of formation. And uh, one of the things that I think that I missed from his description of character was, as, as we sort of touched on, was this idea of a, a formation that goes on to actually, because part of what's required for this humility and introspection is conscience. But conscience is not... Conscience is formed. It doesn't just arise and bubble up from within us. There is There are things that form our conscience to tell us what is right and what is wrong. And I think that one of the difficulties that Brooks has, he's speaking to a public audience, and he, I think, is coming from a Christian faith. A um, Jewish, I understand. Oh, Jewish faith, right. He's very clearly not wanting to make you know, oh, you all have to be Jewish if you're going to follow the road to character. He's trying to say what what is good for all of us because there has to be, if we're going to live in a pluralistic society that's not a theocracy, uh, we have to have sort of uh, things we can all agree on that will be helpful. And I think that one of the things that he hasn't necessarily done as much, it's, it is in some of the stories, but talked about the formation and how we form our conscience so that we can actually know what our weaknesses are. Because I think that some of the studies that are talked about in the Big Me chapter, uh, college students, they just, it seemed that over time they had lost the ability to, to detect what is good and to detect what is actually helpful, not just for other people, but even for themselves. That's really interesting. I, I do think it's the thing that he's missing is about what I was looking for is, or how do you develop character? I, I think he's a little bit oblique about it and he's got this humility code at the end, hmm. um, which I think we can simplify it a little bit more than that. It, it, there is a sense where what I liked is he talked about we have to be self-reflective. And I think that's really important to even cultivate humility is like, well, re-examining how we're uh, talking to other people, re-examining how um, 
I think we've lost that sort of reflection, that self-reflection, and and looking inward for not for the sense of just self-improvement, but actually, where do I want to go, and what are the skills or the the character sets that I need to achieve some of those goals or to have a, have a good life, even I guess. Yeah, I think there was a set of questions at the end which I really liked. Actually, he talked about that we fact we have to have morality that has been replaced by utility. But what we should be thinking is, what should I orientate my life towards? Who am I and what is my nature? So that's that reflection inward. How do I mold my nature to make it gradually better day by day? Well, I think it's a really great question. I don't think we really ask those questions. But that's, that's sort of the pathway to character right there, is asking the question, well, what is it about my nature? I think character... There's a part of character which is innate. Some of us have a better leg to stand on when we're born than others, but we develop it over time. And I think that takes discipline and it takes a thought and it takes reflection. And I think that question is really important. Like, how can I mold my nature to make it better day by day? So, I mean, that's a starting position of humility, I guess, which he's trying to get at. As we start with something going, well, it's not complete right now. I'm not, I'm not a completed person. I need to get somewhere else. And then reflecting about what is that place that I want to head towards, then what do I need to achieve within myself or to correct within myself to achieve that. And I think that's a development of character is thinking about those things, being reflective in a way that is meaningful, I guess, which I, I think you know, there's a lot of mindfulness in a mindfulness culture right now, but that mindfulness is all about creating sort of an inner peace, it seems to be, but not really about reflecting on the things that okay what is a weakness that I should address and how can I address that and asking those questions which I think is important the point of telling the story of the conference was actually that the thing that leapt up within me when he said authenticity was that I was like no none of those I would say are innate good for any leader you know actually having a super charismatic leader who's wrong <laughs> or doesn't know how to make good decisions is actually also a terrible thing because people get blinded by charisma um, but the thing that leapt up with me I was like wisdom you know, you could never go wrong with a leader who had wisdom. Wisdom is something that is always good. Too much preponderance on wisdom can make you act slowly or, you know, that sort of thing. But it was interesting to me, I kept looking for wisdom in this book. I kept on looking to him to kind of go go to uh, an understanding or, or the need for wisdom. And I think that there were a lot of times where he was sort of putting up two there's this self-mastery and then there's kind of the sort of the passion of love you know sort of he has these two different characters who are you know one is this incredibly contained you know emotionless person who manages to achieve incredible things and general marshall and and is it marshall and no one even even you know he didn't even talk in, in, a, in a casual way with most of the people who he considered to be friends and then there's other characters that he admires for their passion and the fact that they followed their dreams regardless of what other people thought and 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 I think that one of the things that frustrates me about that is that the obviously it's the extremes, right? Yes. And so part of part of the road to character that I'm seeing from across the book is the ability to bring balance to the extremes that are sometimes necessary in life. You know, that we need to have mastery of self. We need to have, have self-control, but we also want to be like Ida Eisenhower and, and be able to have fun and joy and be a mother who is laughing with her children. But the idea, obviously the idea is wisdom is is the knowledge, the self-knowledge of when to when to be joyful and when to be serious and, and how to mediate those different um, parts of our character. And I think that wisdom as a central idea is, is something that, yeah, I, I wanted to see more of. And when he talks about the whole self-acceptance thing, I think that part of 
again, wisdom is the thing that takes the crooked timber school of thought, which is the idea that essentially, you know, if you're building a house and you want a floor joist that is straight and true, you're going to have to cut down a tree and the tree is probably going to be crooked. It's not going to be completely straight. So you're going to have to shave a whole bunch off of one side of the of the log you're using and shave a little bit off the other side to try and turn a sort of crooked um, branch into a straight plank. And the idea behind this crooked school is that we recognize that in ourselves we have elements that need to be shaved off in order to be fully useful and in order, in order to sort of you know run a straight line. Um, but also that within us there is also something that we need to accept and and that is good and is wonderful and so i think wisdom is understanding that sense of crooked timber useful but needs to be shaved off in order to be fully useful for what we're what we are intended to do and that's something that takes time as joanne was saying earlier it's it's not something that happens overnight it's something that we develop with age and i think i know that you struggled to see that joanne or, or felt like he didn't really articulate that explicitly which i guess he didn't but i think because i i found that quite clear because he was looking at extended periods of people's lives he wasn't just looking at the beginning or just looking at the end and saying here's a complete person he explained that this was or outlined that this was a whole life journey and even right at the end of their lives these are people who are are still shaving that crooked timber they're not getting it all done overnight I think that's the thing I didn't see is that he didn't say it explicitly chapters like when he talked about George Eliot I think the thing that I found frustrating about that is I felt like he was attributing to George Eliot that at the end of her life it was love and application to love that formed a character within her that I think he's overstating it for me he's stating the the character flaws she was a teenager she was pursuing every man she was looking for love and then she gets settled in a relationship and she had a marriage or a de facto relationship for 11 years and at the end of the time frame that he's talking about she was um, mid to late 40s and he, he attributed that she had great character at the end because of this love relationship but I think it was just age. I just don't see that he's actually, he didn't acknowledge the fact that actually over time you can mellow and, and the, the fickleness of youth in some respects, he overstated and he understated the fact that she matured naturally. Yes, she was in a relationship that was love, but he, he basically said that it was because of an application towards this love that built her character. And I don't see that in the character that he portrayed. But isn't that what she developed that developing over a life or over those 40 years isn't that mellowing part of her developing character I think her approach to that later love is her recognizing that she she needed to be seeking different things in that love she was letting go of some of the things that she saw in men early on I'm not sure to be honest I think the the thing that rankles about that particular example though is the reason that she let go was because she just failed because too many men found her ugly it wasn't a realization of like oh the things I've been chasing it just it wasn't necessarily like you know he I think he's sort of applying like oh she learned but it could have just been that she just you know she was actually in love with this other guy and then it was just like oh no we, we can't be together I'm married and so then she sort of fell into the arms of another guy who was willing to sort of go outside of his marriage with her and so it's just like I don't know I that particular chapter for me I do, I have to say I did send some rather like angry texts about because I was just like this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, I do agree. That was the hardest one to 
stomach. I think it's disappointing because I think the premise is true that great love or loving greatly can deeply shape who you are. And I think if we love others truly in a, in a way that is unconditional, it does shape who we are. It shapes our and moderates our behavior and our ways of engaging. But I don't think that she was a great example of that. Mm. And actually, the love that she had it felt quite selfish. The fact is, yes, he might not have been in love with his wife, but he was still married to his wife for the whole entire time that she was living with him. Well, she prevented him from ever exploring um, true love with his wife and his child potentially I mean we don't know and I think that's the thing that rankled me is I felt like he was projecting onto the story um, because it fit with what he was trying to say but I think there's possibly some other people in which um, good love or great love has transformed their lives and it would have been better to try and find one of those people or even to tell his own story of love maybe. Totally and I, and I also think that he possibly imports the most important part of love in opening up our character as being that sort of first flush of passionate kind of romantic love where you, everything your lover does for you is just you know all that sort of stuff and I'm like actually in terms of building character it's actually the long-term walk of love with people who you know it doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a lover or a spouse it can actually be a parent or a brother or sister or a friend who actually shows self-sacrificing love to be with you in you know, to be with you in moments where you most need them, when everyone else rejects you, you know, when everyone else uh, walks away from you because of your weaknesses. And he does describe that sort of grace of love, that sense of, of grace when you are weak and when you've been caught out in your flaws, realizing that all you can ask for is grace. You can't ask for what you truly deserve because what you truly deserve is something you don't want to, you know, you, no one would want. And actually receiving that grace, whether it be from someone that you're married to or whether it be someone who's a, a, a workmate, a friend, a, a family member, those moments teach you that even when you are fully humbled that's not the end you know you can actually have a beautiful moment and and you can you can come back out of that valley of humility even you just talking about love in that way that's actually what character is I think character is this application to doing the right thing or the or the good by other people that builds character it's making the right decisions on a regular basis I think character is developed through those small acts, what you're talking about, and in, in the acts of love towards friends um, or family members. I think those are the things that build character. Is like sometimes we, when we sort of lay down our own preference for somebody else, that's what builds character. So this road to character is actually a, a development of, of moving forward by these small acts, these small decisions. It comes through to one of the bigger points that I had thought of while, while reading it is that the role of community in people's lives, the role of relationship, not just interpersonal relationship, but the role of relationship with a wider community um, is kind of ignored. I think he it's, it's quite ironic almost that he talks about the big me and then focuses on individuals and really focuses on almost his admiration for them as a, a person who's achieved a great thing or or has stood out for some reason in terms of their Adam one, you know, their their resume virtues, you know, the fact that, you know, that he's he's included presidents and generals who managed to bring America through really hard times or who were admired greatly for the things that they achieved. And I know that there's something in just shifting in between individuals who had no interrelationship with one another. In fact, one of the things I enjoyed most was the description of Rustin and Randolph and the, and the moments where he talks about how those two had great individual qualities, but then Rustin needed Randolph in these key moments. Randolph was able to sort of go, you know what? Yes, Rustin has really stuffed up. He's really, he's really messed up, but I'm going to almost personally guarantee, I'm going to bring him alongside me 
I'm, you know me as a safe person and I'm going to, so that that person, you know, Rustin wasn't just rejected and everything he had to give, all of his talents and his abilities weren't wasted, but he was forgiven in that way because of his relationship and community. And I think there's a quote from Brooks. He says, we don't become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves. And I think that love is communicated through relationship. Like most of the time, most of the things that I love, most of the things that I you know, the, the sort of loves of my life in terms of culture, the music that I love, the the art forms that I love, I was introduced to by either my parents, a teacher, a friend, the, their love for something really, they brought me into it and I was able to see it through their eyes and now I appreciate it. And so to me, developing better loves is not an individual pursuit most of the time. It's actually something that you go about and you find and you discover through someone else introducing you. Another example of that in the book is Dwight and Ida Eisenhower, this familial relationship and how she as a mother really shaped Dwight as he became president um, or even as he grew up as a young boy. There are a couple of things in that chapter that resonated for me. I have three brothers who somehow seem to enjoy spending a lot of time um, with tools and near-death experiences <laughs> so when when there was the story of the brother and he talks about common death um and and our approach to to life as a result of that it was like ah oh, it kind of sounds familiar but aside from that david brooks talks about her understanding that you can't just rely on self-control on habit or work, like hard work which is definitely my my natural instinct I want to be able to work at something and and get better at it but actually you need people around you to help you grow and to help shape you and form you because our will is just far too weak I might decide to do something in the morning like you know I'll decide I'm going to go for a run and then by the afternoon I'll have talked myself out of it because that's a very easy thing to do and so then what you have to do is tell someone that you're going to go for a run and hope that they will hold you to account or even just that mere fact of having told someone that you're going to go for a run might help. <laughs> totally. I think holding accountable is really important in, in character development. But one of the things I was thinking also, that idea about, as Jeremy was just talking about, that the big names in the book, I think what's sad about that, as Jeremy said, it's like, well, if these are eulogy kind of qualities, then what about just the average person? Because it's almost like he's holding up these big goals that we should be attaining to. Well, what about the small person who doesn't get to achieve a big goal? I'd really like to see or hear those stories. That's the average, average person. That's my life. So I'm not going to be someone who everybody in the world knows about. And if that's the goal, then I think then we're, we've lost something in and within ourselves. I, I agree. That was something that I was trying to work through. These are people who are, as you've both said, exceptional people in different ways. And I might not agree with them or their lives in every way, but they are very exceptional people. So what is that connection between the Adam one and the Adam two does does having Adam good Adam strong Adam two virtues improve your Adam one which then I don't, I don't know it's it's this really gray murky area that I don't I don't actually think he makes that very clear 
I kind of thought that he portrayed talent or gift and he kind of merged that or blurred that with character some of the times through some of these people that we, we listened to because they had achieved great things. But I'm not sure necessarily that it was their inner man, their character that caused them to do that. I think some of them had exceptional gifts and exceptional talent. And I think you can be exceptionally gifted or talented and achieve some good goals, but not necessarily have traveled a road of character to get there. And you may be a, a lack of character once you have achieved those means that you don't don't go any further than that. I'm not sure that he actually draws that distinction very clearly in the book either. I think that one of the things I appreciated was that I think he was fairly honest in, especially I'm, I'm just thinking particularly about the stories of Marshall and Eisenhower. He was talking about the fact that these, I think using the people of great talent and of great skill, but who also had great weakness. So, I mean, Marshall, he talked quite openly about the fact that he was no real great student and that he was kind of a very middling performer all the way through until he had that mentoring relationship with the guy at, I can't remember which institution it was, but essentially this, this guy sort of recognized something in him and said he really applied himself. It's kind of a bit fuzzy, and this is also a bit of the difficulty I have with the book, is that there's either this magic moment where someone just decides that they're going to be better and they are forevermore, and they're sort of, they just, they put their nose to the grindstone and they just go for it, or they sort of have this middle period, which in a movie is kind of taken care of by montage, uh, where they just sort of through a relationship with a superior or, you know, through the sort of mediating influence of an institution, they somehow develop discipline and they they get the skills that they need for but but i think that in that there's a there's a sense where especially with eisenhower you know his his wicked temper and the fact that he was just so hot-headed and that he realized that and that he really worked on that it still really flared up um, when he was in his role as a president it wasn't something that prevented him he got enough of a handle on it that he was able to and, and i guess this is the question of you know was was that side of him just ignored by people because he was in that role and they just had to deal with it and there's sort of a whole conversation there as well i am interested in even the idea of what is that moment or what does that process look like where we where, where someone develops character because he puts a lot onto the mediating influence like it was the institution or it was this particular relationship or was it, it was this period of education or this there was this moment like the triangle shirtwaist factory fire that really you know was this inciting incident to, for character and one of the things that i think in our culture that's a problem and one of the reasons why the big me has taken hold so much and, and we sort of talked about the fact that we expect things to happen instantaneously things of value should come to us either just by virtue of who we are or we should have some kind of transformative moment that where everything has changed and that's borne out in lots of our kids movies you know like just the number of movies where there's a character who has a like there's a character i think it's called zoom where a snail wants to be the fastest race car or something like that and and you're like you're a snail you're never going to be faster than but then the, like there's this magical technology moment where like all through the movie he's been dreaming of being faster than anyone else and everyone's like no you're a snail you can't do that and then he gets this technology which oh turbo turbo the movie's called turbo and and suddenly at the end of the movie you know he doesn't actually have to work or change anything about himself he just there's this magical change and i think there's a sense of where the medium is the message and the way that we understand and have our understanding of character change given to us 
it used to be that young people would read books, young people who could read and were fortunate enough to be educated, but they would read novels. They would read sort of very long works of fiction, which would track over the course of a person's life. And, and even in the way that they read them, they would have to read them over multiple days. And you'd get a sense of time passing and a character falling and, and getting up and all that sort of stuff. And now we don't, you know, like books don't have as much place in telling us the cultural stories that we have. We, we listen to songs. We particularly watch movies. And in a movie, there's about an hour and a half and you don't get the chance to be able to communicate the long, sometimes very drudgery of building character and of falling and and getting back up and failing and, and trying again. And I feel like part of the medium is the message is that we just, in the way our imaginations are designed by what we, what we consume, we don't really have a category for suffering for a long time and that being a good thing possibly and leading to good results in our life. It doesn't even have to be suffering, I don't think. I think it's just a passage of time and just um, the steady plod of life. And I think um, when you're talking about society, uh, it's my reflection, especially in this COVID period and reflecting back to the Great Depression and then thinking about my grandparents' lives and just the fact that everything is so instantaneous. We have microwaves, we have instant food, we have takeaways and our dependence on all these instant, instant, instant. That's really shaped and formed, as you say, our imagination. Whereas I think like my grandparents' imagination, I remember you know, going to visit her and she'd be darning socks if they had holes in them where we'd just throw them away. And I think all of that helps shape the way that we think about life and we want this instant change. As you say, we're seeing it reflected in movies and things like that. But this is the problem is because character does take time and I think it's a slow application of doing the right thing, asking the right questions. It's been deliberate. It's been measured. That's what builds character and I think that's a really interesting reflection. Also, just wanted to go back to Perkins. You're talking about the fire and those moments with Perkins. I found that a really interesting chapter. And one of the things I reflected on is that he talked about the character towards sort of the, again, the end of her life. But I really found it fascinating that she went undercover to expose pimps. (laughs) She did that, you know, like she went into the slave labor trade. She went into these places and it said that she exposed 111 of these places. So she went into these 111 different places to expose them because of the people that were down and out couldn't do it for themselves. Well, that took a lot of character. I can't even imagine myself doing that, even in this modern age. I don't sure that too much has changed when it comes to slave labor and prostitution. And, and yet that would have taken grit, determination, focus, fortitude. You know, a woman in that place, she went in undercover, exposed them, brought justice. Like she had a lot of grit and determination at the front end of her life. There wasn't a question there. Like what built it to the point that she could do that even before she got to the golden years of her life in some respects. Frances Perkins was fascinating to me. And I think that the idea that was in her schooling, I just wrote down that Perkins' schooling stories reflected a societal attitude that says, life is hard, we must be harder in order to succeed. And I was like, man, you know, that message that life is inherently hard, that regardless of what you might do, regardless of how successful you are, you still are going to suffer in some way. Things are not going to be convenient. You're still probably going to have to cut your own firewood and, you know, fix your own stuff because who's going to come and do it for you? And and we have the reverse of that. And we've softened a lot in response to a life that has become more and more convenient as consumer goods have basically sought to seek out our kind of areas of inconvenience and, and, find a solution to those so that we can buy them and, and someone can make money which you know is great you know there's there's a lot of good there um, but it means that diffi- it's easy for us to imagine that difficulty and suffering is a sign that something has gone wrong 
or that something you know suffering is a sign that inherently something is bad and we need to get away from it as soon as possible and I think life is hard you know she was prepared to work hard to the point that she was prepared to dress like a matronly old lady to do her work when she was actually still quite young so that in a man's world she would still be respected that's a huge deal my other thought reading through this chapter and then listening to this conversation the area that we haven't really touched on is vocation and that's a really big part of this chapter with Perkins I think it's something that we talk about a lot in society today at least my generation that's something that we discuss people think oh well I've got to have the perfect job I've got to be having a lot of fun we've talked about it a little bit in the office particularly as a result of Flinton Steel just quiet plug there our version of vocation being all, all of life, it's not just work. But I, I don't know if I like what, what Brooks is saying about vocation here and that you have to have a really defined or organised version of vocation to, to be developing good character. I think surely a normal person who hasn't had that the light on moment, this is my vocation, can still be developing good character. And I say this having had an experience of actually I think... I think I am living out a bit of a vocation. But but I've had conversations with friends who are struggling to figure that out, but I see in their lives that they, they really are developing good character. And and so I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, I guess. It's number 13 on the uh, the humility code, which is no good life is possible unless it's organized around a vocation. Um, and I have, you know, I've written a whole article about my thoughts about vocation, <laughs> which you can put in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I think that his his view on vocation is very similar to Augustine's view, which is that essentially, you know, I think he even states it outright, which is that, you know, your, your vocation is where your great love meets the world's greatest needs, sort of thing. like that sort of thing of like, you know, what are you uniquely talented or, or given to do? What do you love? What's pouring out of your heart? Where do you see a great need in the world? And I... I just resist that. I really fundamentally resist the idea that vocation has to be something that is is like this this moment of true self, you know, this moment where you kind of go, aha, you know, this is this is who I am, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Like, you know, and I think that's really false. And I think that one of the reasons why so many people are so unhappy and so feel that their lives are devoid of meaning, feel that their lives are devoid of purpose. I mean, one of them is I think that there is a sense that, you know, we, we have less of an understanding of the spiritual, the faith, the sort of the outside realm of our lives. That sort of previous generations there was a real institutional sense of faith that if you're born in a particular country, you belonged to this particular religion. And so you know, there was this sense that, you know, there were there were spiritual guides or, or leaders or pastors or reverends that could tell you what your life was for, the meaning of your life, who you, who created you, all that sort of stuff. And now we've made faith much more of a personal thing. That's more of a journey where people have to kind of go, oh, I believe this or I don't. And they, there's sort of more of a choice around around that. But I also think that we, we have a real crisis of meaning because people are told that they have to invent the meaning of their lives, that they are the ones who are, who are, who are uh, entrusted with this task of 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 going, you know, what are you authentically for? And I'm like, you're authentically for being a good 
for me i'm i'm a good you know my one of my roles is to be a good son and the fact that i didn't see my mother any flowers for mother's day is a sign that i'm not doing that very well i'm meant to be a good son you know i've got a wife i'm meant to be a good husband and part of my vocation is being that good husband and, and figuring out how i can be a better one and and i've got a daughter part of my vocation is to be a good father and part of that is to have a job that allows me to provide for my daughter to give her good things and to make sure that she can be safe and alive and and that's a beautiful and huge vocation of life talking to Karen who's one of our colleagues who's been doing a bunch of work around character skills is he's been talking about you know the the fact that parents are the first educators you know parents are the ones who actually there's this quote that a particular education researcher has said that the best schools and the best teachers do what the best parents do you know, they actually invest in children's lives. And so I think for a lot of parents, they go, oh, well, you know, I send my kids off to school and, and you know, the teachers can teach them. I'm not a professional. But actually a parent showing a child what is good and what is worthy of attention. And like I was saying before, the, the better loves, you know, the um, introducing their children to the beautiful things that they know about in their life and saying, hey, I find value in this and I'm offering it to you as well. Like those are huge vocations that we just sort of write off as, oh, I'm a parent. And so, you know, yes, I have work that inspires me. I'm really fortunate to work in, a, in an organization that I believe, I believe in what we do and I think it's incredibly important and I, I love being able to be the communications manager here and stuff like that. But fundamentally, I don't believe that, you know, I, I've had jobs that are shockingly boring and I've been forced to face this question of vocation. If what I do from nine to five on a work day is just to be a customer service person who's helping Nestle get their plastic packaging from Christchurch to Auckland, which is what I did for a year and a half. If that is, that's soul destroying, awful, you know, if that's not giving me meaning, then where else in my life do I need to find meaning? And I fully believe that a vocation does not have to be um, you know, making this radical change for an entire group of people. That's fantastic when people do do that. But people's lives have meaning. People's lives have great character, whether or not they are leading a nonprofit to, you know, change the world or whether they're, whether or not they're a general who's, you know, defeating the Nazis or whether they're actually just someone in the suburbs who is actually raising children of good character or who is treating their colleagues and their workmates with human dignity and being a source of light in their workplace um, and being a source of humanity and love and showing grace to others and helping people up from their brokenness and recognizing their own, you know, all these things about vulnerabilities and their personal characteristics. That is just as much your vocation as, as doing something that David Brooks might write about. Anyway, that's my rant. I mean, I would always say that it's the developing of development of character is a life work of vocation that is important for all of us, regardless of what we actually do. Like as far as the the jobs that we do, it's who we are in the jobs that we do that is most important. And I think that's why character is so important. And I think because we we are in a a world in which we even in the book, all these characters that have achieved these great things, we look to achieve great things, but I don't think that's the purpose of life. And I think if we are trying to say that the purpose of life is to discover what it is that I can contribute to this world over and above being this person of great character that is actually influencing other people's lives, even on the micro scale, it doesn't have to be macro for this to be important. And I think if we're making vocation or the task that we do the most important thing, I think then we're really missing something. The difficulty in writing a book about character, right, especially when you're using the examples of 
people's lives that are public are people who have been exceptional and who are well known. They're not the normal everyday person. And I guess one of my frustrations is is not hearing David's story or more of that. It would have I was expecting the whole time for the last chapter to be the story of David Brooks's road to character. And I think that would have been And his own personal character. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think that would have been a beautiful way to hear the story of a normal person. Although he is a best selling author and New York Times columnist, so I don't know I don't know how normal you can call that. But, but I think that's what I was looking for too. I was looking for a story of the ordinary someone who had achieved ordinary things but in a great way because of their great character or even just a shining example of someone that he had encountered who had shown great kindness or gentleness or goodness. The things that we look for, the character traits that we, we admire, where's the story about just someone who, maybe even um, a teacher for one of his children who really impacted his child's life just because of, of how they taught them, things like that. Because there are teachers out there who are making great impact on people's lives just because of who they are and the way that they're forming a beautiful space for children to learn. But those are the small kinds of character that I was looking for because I think, and in essence, they're the most essential. Because those are the ones that are truly going to change society. Because when we have a we have communities in a society that are filled with people of good character who fill every role, um, that is how we actually have a, a society that that is resilient that can handle shocks like the ones we're currently experiencing. Um, but when we have a society that's filled with selfish people who have shallow character, um, you know that that's a a terrifying idea. I think it's interesting the David Brooks point because I also thought that perhaps he might, you know, include himself or, or to be personal and to describe some of his own weaknesses. But also thinking about it, I think that one of his chief weaknesses that he's trying to sort of get past in this whole thing is pride. Um, and I think that inserting himself into a book, um, and that's possibly why sort of he thinks humility is the sort of the biggest key to character because for him I think humility probably is um you know that may be I mean that's just me totally reading into it um but I think that I mean for all the critiques that we've had I I really have appreciated uh reading the book but also particularly this conversation I just really really appreciated both of your contributions and 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 what you've what you've brought just to finish off there's the 15th point on the humility code I think is a great summation of what I have found to be uh, really helpful from this book and um, for those of you who've listened all the way through thank you so much for joining us um, and I'll leave you with this when you successfully struggle against weakness or sin it may or may not make you rich and famous but you will become mature a quality that is earned not by being better than other people at something but by being better than you used to be to all of you listening along, thank you so much for being part of the Maxim Book Club this month. Uh, we've really enjoyed uh, getting this project off the ground uh, and we love hearing from you. So please, uh, when we've uh, announced the next book, which we're about to do, uh, please make sure you read the book and send through as many of your comments and questions. We've really enjoyed uh, bringing in some of your comments and questions into our discussion today. If you somehow managed to listen to this podcast and you are not yet a member of our book club, then please feel free to email me at uh, bookclub at maxim.org.au. Uh, and we will sign you up to the list you'll get notifications of which book we're reading and then the next month along you will receive a reading guide which sort of gives an overview of what's in the book and some questions to help you sort of think about things and then you'll also receive an email alerting you to when we've got the new podcast up um, from all of us here at maximum institute thank you so much for your interest in our work and um, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week